Well, I saved one in prayer. All right, we're going to go for a walk. Nope, quite. I haven't mastered how to navigate the very things that can happen on the um, iPad. I, I, I can certainly navigate the. Uh, Where are we, Diane? Yeah. Uh, morning yeah, office. I've seen you on morning cool. prayer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I love it when she prays to us. Yeah. Yeah, I, I never yeah, turn my camera on because I'm in my room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You don't want to look at me anymore. Not looking so good. <laughs> you don't have your hair again. At least you don't have colors. Yeah, my hair is Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right, I'm on the edge of my seat. What we're gonna study? Malachi. Malachi. You didn't well, get the email. I got the last oh, night. Last night at uh, ten o'clock. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. It was right under the wire. Yeah. Well, it was yeah. a little bit like it was a little like, oh, I lost the day with four. It's like, oh, that's I just a little bit off and yeah. I know. Every day feels like a weekend. It does. <laughs> it does. It's it's classes. Yeah. So we're going to be doing Malachi, huh? <laughs> Malachi. Malachi. As he shines. I cracked up when you said that. <laughs> what is it this book of Malachi? Okay, I need to, uh, I need to figure out how to... Um, I've had, you know, all, all, it's all great if you know how to use the stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. It's, I do like my I just it's not intuitive to me where I can where I can get the oh, I was gonna anyway, we'll leave that alone. Alright, so uh, there we are. Through ten thirty, let's pray. Blessed Lord has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning, grant to we men such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The good coffee today is out in the hallway. Right. I don't know how old that pot is. Not it's new. iced coffee. Yes, yeah, so there's a, there's a fresh, there's a fresh yeah. container out there. Uh, and so uh, get your coffee there. Great, thank you. Great, thank you. Good to know. So we, we talked a couple weeks about the chronology of the Bible, and um, so where does, uh, so now today we have the quiz. Okay, yeah. The right. quiz, of course. Daniel 7. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Daniel 7. It's like the preschools bring uh, kids in the, in the church when you're, you're quizzing them, it's like, Jesus. Malachi. Yeah, yeah. So, what are the what what 
let's towards the end of the Old Testament, we have the we talked about the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. I'll give you the date, 722 BC. Uh, that that was conquered by the whom? Assyrians. By the Assyrians. Assyrians. And then uh, the southern kingdom, which was called Samaria. No. Judah. 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 Oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. The northern kingdom was Samaria. called. And its capital was Samaria. So the king is Judah, and the capital is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So that falls in what year? 931. No. That was in the kingdom split in two. That's way back. 700? What's that? 700? No. Are you talking about the invasion of the Assyrians? Is that what you're talking well, about? Well, we did the Assyrians in the Northern Kingdom. Now we're in the okay. Southern Kingdom. Is this Babylon? Yeah. Okay, so is this Babylon? 650. Yeah, okay. So they're sending Five, eight, six? No. Getting, getting close. Warmer? Keep going. Keep going. Warmer? <laughs> <laughs> 539. Five, five, well, no, that's no. when the Cyrus allows you to back and rebuild. Go uh, back and call them. Yeah, but six fifty six. We got it. So five eighty six there. Oh, okay, six fifty to five eighty six. That's a, a range of years under which you give you a specific year. Oh, the temple destroyed five eighty six by the Babylonians. Okay. And this was carried off to exile in Babylon. And then we get to the um, next column of our chronology, last column of chronology. Um, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And so there's the um, biblically famous and I think historically known Edict of Cyrus that issued <coughs> allowing the Jewish people to, to go back and rebuild the temple. Now, we should note that it, it isn't necessarily that Cyrus had, had, had come to confess the one true God. Uh, it's um, That was a Persian policy to support the, the local religion in each of its subject kingdoms with the, with the provision that that subject religion pray for the rulers. <laughs> uh, interestingly, which, which, I mean, and that became part of the Christian um, uh, practice was to... Uh, there's a good share over here. That's fine. Yeah, come up here. Um, I'm sorry. I don't know if you, you know, you got used to your chair over there. Though. Yeah, sorry, I think I took your chair. <laughs> your chair. It's good. It's you know, have a size chair. Yeah, yeah. It's here on the right hand, so you're like, <laughs> <laughs> so, But I say the Christian practice came to be to pray for secular rulers, yeah. even if they're not Christian. This yeah. comes out of First Timothy. I, I urge, therefore, the prayer be made for kings and those authority. We had some... Um, and we made that shift, incidentally, our liturgy, uh, I think it's a, not a big shift, it's just a, a progression with, with, with where the, we are, but the, the traditional book of common prayer, we prayed for Christian rulers. But that was a, that, that idea, that's a remnant of Christendom, which is gone now, where, where you were praying for Christian rulers, say, in England, you were praying for every ruler there was because everybody had been baptized at birth and everybody confessed the faith. So you weren't singling out the believing people from the pagans. You were just praying for a Christendom. Yeah. 
but we've moved beyond that now, so, so we've gone back, and, and I think people should go back to the ancient practice of praying for rulers. We don't presume they're Christian, but, we, but even then, uh, there's a burden for rulers to, to execute justice, to maintain the public good in an impartial way. So that's why we, we made that change in our liturgy, because it, it, we're simply not in that. And then it, it, the, the, the liturgy of the church never envisioned that the church would pray just for those who were really Christian and not those who were really not Christian, is that you're always supposed to pray for those in charge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. I appreciate that. I do too. Yeah. And before Leonora left, she asked us as a group, a women's group, to pray for the leaders because that's where the decision making yeah. filters down to mm-hmm. her boots on the yeah, ground. So right. she asked yeah. us. Yeah. 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 So, uh, anyway, so Cyrus. Um, but the Persian policy was to support the, lo- the, the native religion of, of the conquered people as long as it prayed for and, and you know, the, 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 the Persian ruler and didn't foment rebellion. And I think so, again, Cyrus is seen as a hero, but he's also, and he gives, he, he lends to the rebuilding effort, but the proviso is now you're going to be a loyal Persian subject, you're not going to, you know, rebel, and, and, right. and that, that, that would be, have, have been a given. Mm-hmm. So, 586, you go into exile, Babylon is conquered by the Persians, 539, Cyrus allows the Jews to go back and rebuild, and we see that at the very bottom, if you want the history of that, that's Ezra and Nehemiah um, are in that period, it talks about, uh, um, Ezra's a priest, and Nehemiah is uh, working in the Persian court and gets permission to go back and help the rebuilding effort because he's learned they've stalled, the efforts have stalled a little bit. And um, So Persia is Iran, and Babylonia is Iraq? Geographically, Geographically, let's let's be let's be. Although um, I, I, I'll, I'll put another explanatory gloss that although still um, modern Iran has some connection ethnically to to ancient uh, Persia, and they are distinct in that area because they're not Arabic peoples, they're Indo-European, which is one of the reasons that the Islamic Revolution in Persia never had, in Iran, never had the resonance with the rest of the Arab world, is it's not, they're not, they're, they're not uh, Semitic, uh, Ishmaelite peoples there. Um, so... Yeah. So, and we're getting it at uh, an evening prayer. If you're if you're along with us and we're reading Maccabees, this chronology doesn't go that far. Maybe I'll produce a New Testament one that goes farther that way. Um, the Persians were eventually conquered by Alexander the Great in a couple of major battles, and then 
that's how Greek culture spread. Pretty amazing, because he died like at age 30 after he already, you know, already conquered the world. <laughs> uh, that could give you a heart attack. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, 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 that's badass, dude. You know, yeah. <laughs> he conquered yeah. the whole world by age 30 yeah. or something there. So, um, yeah, that is yeah. apex. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that, and that's the Maccabean revolt we're talking about, about an evening prayer where a descendant of, of one of Alexander's generals then becomes an oppressor to the Jewish people oh, okay. about 200 BC. But we're backing up here now to Persia. We're still in Persian rule. Persia is a world empire and they allow the Jews to rebuild. And they do rebuild. When does, um, it's significant just in your mind as a, um, as a, as a rebuilding date in relationship to 586 BC, when did the temple, when was the, the second temple dedicated and what year? 520. <laughs> so the foundation of the second temple laid. Um, and, and, and it was actually completed, I, I have to add a date there, to, and call it 515, because uh, the, the importance of 70 years is uh, because the prophet Jeremiah says that they'll be uh, in, in exile 70 years for all the years they didn't keep uh, the Jubilee year. So he knew, he yeah. knew. Yeah, yeah. so in other words, there was a, so 70 is important from, from exile in 586 to, to the temple being put back into use in, um, in uh, five, uh, yeah, 515. Yeah, you know, five, so. If you move down, there's a whole rack of chairs here. Are you good? Is that good? Let's make a big fuss about it. Yeah. She's working. She's still alive. Come to women's group now, too. Like the person at the front table at the comedy show. Anyone wearing a turquoise shirt? Um... <laughs> so they so they rebuild the second temple, and they start you know so worship starts, um, but you know there are problems. <laughs> what would be some of the problems? Are you talking about in Ezra and Nehemiah's time? Is there yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah's time? Yeah, well, Nehemiah I'm, I'm now I'm talking about yeah when they they rebuilt the temple. Now. Um, Nehemiah um, actually is going to be the one who's instrumental to be to rebuilding the walls of the city. Right. You know, the walls of the city are interesting thing. You know, I've kind of appreciated it more now with some of our overseas brethren when we help and they build something. They build their thing, but it's extremely important after they build that God build a wall. Yeah. It's 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 it. It marks, it, it's a security measure. And this is something that mm -hmm. we're raising away from Mama Muir now. She needs to build a fence around her compound. Even though it's mm -hmm. not, you know, electrical and armed guards, something about that Very gives you a little more. This is mine. It's not your father being me had to build a wall. Mm -hmm. Everybody has to build a wall to, to, and, and so in Jerusalem, one of the problems is that they're still surrounded by people who aren't that happy they're there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have to begin to make a fortress out of it to, mm -hmm. to make sure that those who don't want you to be there can um, cannot get you. That's all metaphorical, of course, spiritual life, mm -hmm. where we hear, you know, Lord is my stronghold, my house defense, mm -hmm. my castle, mm -hmm. is that when we take refuge in in mm -hmm. in God, which means 
to stay connected in faith and prayer than the enemies that would want to attack us, the world, the flesh, the devil, don't have as much ability to sort of penetrate the defenses and, and conquer us. Why people have borders. Yeah. But we think about um, why um, we talk about the life of prayer a lot, and that's um, that is your boundary. That yes. is the, the, yes. the thing that surrounds you yes. with protection. So did, so did Nehemiah, he helped build the wall, and then did he also help with the temple building? Where he built no, that was already temple? built. Oh, so already the temple built. was okay. built in 515. Okay. The wall of the city of Jerusalem comes, gets oh, built, gets that. finished okay. later than okay. that. Okay. Um, and, and so that's, uh, that's kind of, Ezra, his, his, he is more, he's more focused on, he's a priest and more focused on the temple. Nehemiah goes back and look at his book, he, he rides around, sees the broken down gates, and he, he spurs the rebuilding of the, town, of the city walls. So the and city he also walls goes around busting people for not... By the Jews in the, in the 400s BC. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Spurred on by Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was kind of the beginning of... I don't know if it was Father Hayden that said that, kind of the, uh, the pharisaical way... Well, so, so, he was going yeah, around saying, yeah. hey, you guys are keeping the Sabbath. I'm going to kick you out. You well, yeah, and, and so this is one of the things you want to see in, in the historical flow that we're talking about is, is the, the rhythm. So, so if you talk about Old Testament legalism, you don't really find it before the time of, of sort of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, you, you have... Um, what you have in the Old Testament is... is rabid laxity everywhere, <laughs> mm-hmm. where people are much more in the mode of probably America in its heyday of, of uh, you know, prosperity combined with compromised Christianity, where you're, oh, God's with us, and it's all great, and things are going good. Nothing can go wrong. And, and, and you, but you don't take seriously the commands of the of, of you know of the Torah or of our Lord, but you have a general sense because he's with us. It's all going to it, it's all going to be great, and that's what led to Jerusalem's downfall, and it's what's leading to the unraveling of our own country. I'm not getting in. This is nothing political. It is the church mm-hmm. that is not mm-hmm. committed Christians. That's that's the fall. We don't point at others out there, but. But this idea of this, oh, you know, you have this, this sort of um, abstract faith that doesn't have a concrete expression in a wholehearted devotion to God through worship and a wholehearted love for others that flows out of that, you, the whole structure begins to unravel and thus it happened in our culture. So we're, we're disintegrating. Is that what they mean by having a romanticized idea of something? Like, I think that's that, that I, I think, well, yeah, I mean, a romanticized idea would be something like, you know, you want to go on a vacation, oh, this place, it's all great, and you go there and let go. They've got, <laughs> they've got poverty and problems, too, or something oh, like that. Or, or, but, yeah, I think that's, you can have a romanticized idea of what, what faith is like, or, and it, it's more, I, I would say, in, in um, our time, 
the, the maybe not a direct synonym, but related to that is something we would call sort of Gnostic, mm-hmm. which is this idea that, that um, I have this kind of faith that is sort of separate from my actual life. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I believe, and, and, and that's over here, but over here is the life I'm living. And I think that would have characterized Israel, uh, although um, Israel would have been more overt, in the compromises would have been more evident and overt in the sense that going to the temple, then living locally, they would have been actually participating in local sacrifices with the idea that this is necessary to grow in this valley, because there, this was a god of the valley here. But I think we ought to understand the parallel between that and saying that, yeah, that's all good in church, but hey, here in the workplace, you got to do what you got to do to get by. And the idea that your, your ethical and moral compass doesn't apply here, and you got to do this to get by. And you get, that's, that's, for, throughout our culture, the decline of faith is the idea that that is the case. And, in, in, and um, anyway, so, so, so that was the Old Testament. Now they get judged, sent into exile, and they return. And so people like Ezra and then Nehemiah are like, you and know, the law, uh, right? like, damn it, yeah. that's not going to happen again. Yeah. Is and that, that, and that's, so that's a natural reaction to yeah. laxity is legalism, yeah. mm-hmm. and and they're both polar. They're errors on the on the extremes that that are um, actually met in the middle by what we call incarnational faith, where the word is made flesh, and what we do outwardly is an expression of a, of a true and inward devotion. And in which um, the, uh, but but it's not purely legalistic in the sense that there's a sense in which the law of love even governs the 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 the, 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 the prescribed duties. So some of us, oh, well, love would call for an adjustment, and this is what our Lord does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keep the Sabbath, but. But, it's, but but I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Yeah, Lord of the Sabbath. So so the idea that his disciples who are following him, following the Lord, pick some heads of grain, get a little something to eat. That's not that's not the violation God was thinking about mm-hmm. when he was saying keep holy of Sabbath day. So so Bishop, is this when they read the law? Is it is it, was it during Nehemiah's time they find the the law and they read the scrolls and the people they, they, they read it again in the rebuilding of the temple. Now they also felt uh, found it in um, back uh, in our chronology of column back in Josiah, who was in in the in the time from um, I don't actually highlight his reforms here, right. but about six in the six twenties BC, there was a king named Josiah who came to the throne of Israel. And he was a reforming king. Remember, we talked about this last time. He came on the heels of the very wicked king Manasseh. And the very wicked king Manasseh, he reigned for a long time and established a lot of bad things. Josiah comes to the throne, and they find the book of the law, and he reads it. And um, and so he begins. Now, there's also a... Um, 
the finding of the law, and uh, there's also a, a passage in Jeremiah where jo Jeremiah has a, a prophetic message for the leaders, and he gives it to his, his scribe to go read to them, and the king is, is this is not Josiah, different king, he's sitting in the, by the fireplace, he takes a scroll and he throws it in the fire. Mm, he's chilling. So, so... Um, Glad he made a copy for us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's this hearing of the law, but there's not the wholehearted response to it. And the same thing happens in the time of um, Nehemiah. And I, I would say something here. This is something that we have to always take to heart. I don't know that it's ever been anything other than a remnant of God's people who really apply themselves to take the law of God to heart and do it. And it is why we we focus our approach to mission and ministry on that, on the formation of the remnant, trying to build the kind of thing we're supposed to be, rather than yelling at other people, not doing it, to do it. Because that's that's kind of because what happens with that is is it's even what happens sometimes in the in the moral activism, our culture, you have Christians yelling mm -hmm. at the world to, to oh, behave God. differently when Christians themselves are really behaving differently. Because it, it historically has shown that there's not much statistical difference in how people behave between those who label themselves Christians and those who check off some other box. That's just in, in the broad sense. Now, if you got to the remnant of people who took it seriously, you have a different thing, but but that's more attractive. But it has to the the, the witness always ha has to begin within us, so that so that it, it it takes some kind of root and produces some kind of different thing that can be seen that bears witness to something people have never seen before. And this is I think your know, father Hayden gave a nice. Uh, uh, sermon in church on on last Sunday's gospel today. Uh, you know, love your enemies, uh, do good to those. You know, forgive, give. That's that's a new thing in the world. The old thing is, you hurt me, I hurt you. Mm -hmm. An eye for an eye. And so, um, a, a full, a fully developed Christian ethic manifests. This new thing, first by an interior transformation, where, where we experience God's grace to us, uh, which is not God's strict justice to us, but is a gift, which in turn allows us then to deal with others in terms of desiring the good and being willing to forgive. Again, not naively, not like you don't have to realize some people are bad people and you have to have boundaries, but even then, it's a desire for their good. And you, 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 sometimes you see this kind of attitude expressed among Christians who live in very persecuted areas. I was, yes. I, now I, I did, I did, I'm not fully informed about all that happened around these kind of things. A couple of years ago, I remember when a Coptic church was bombed on Easter, I got some yes. you know, communication mm -hmm. from open doors where some of the believers saying next day that, that they were, you know, praying for those who had done this and, and they were, they were like, okay, that's something new in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And 
And isn't that and, how they And to hear that, you realize, oh, I'm not great. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of far away from that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's, then we begin to understand where our work is. up the West. And that's, that's, my, that's our point about interior transformation mm-hmm. is that that kind, of, that kind of love is transforming because it meets mm-hmm. overt hatred with not with, with that back and futile back and forth that, that is throughout the scriptures too, right? Whether it be, you know, Jacob, Esau, right. you know, uh, Ishmael, Isaac, into, and, and this, the gospel says, no, all can come. And we're ambassadors for that, which it doesn't, it doesn't mean there's not a honesty about it. I don't think that's right, but it's not a, a personally vindictive thing. It, it's, 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 a, it's a stand for, for what is actually true. Because don't you think that that's what really stood out about the early church? Because they had never seen something like that before. The Romans, you know, it's like, why are they, you know, they were... Well, and, here, and here's, a hard, here's a hard thing. I, I thought about this the other day, and I don't have it, but it, it's like saying, what was, the, what was the hallmark and the most powerful aspect of that witness? It was martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And we should understand, absolutely understand, that the Greek word for... Witness is martyr. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you you when when Jesus says you will be witnesses, you know you can't linguistically just make jumps that aren't there. But he says you will be martyrs to me. Mm-hmm. But your witness is giving your whole life. And why was martyrdom significant? Because Rome held power mm-hmm. over everyone by the threat of power and death. And the Christians were unique in that when they said, I'm going to kill you, they said, okay, but we're, we're not going to burn incense. And so, so the, the witness of the martyrs was profound in undermining, hmm. in undermining the power of Rome. And, and, and again, some, something should be noted about this, that the Christianity, Rodney Starks says, is a, uh, sociologist who has a book called The Rise of Christianity, which is an interesting read. But the, the, the numbers are that there were about, he estimates, 10,000 Christians by the late 1st century. Yeah. By the early 4th century, early 300s, I think there were 4 million. So in that geometric possession, something happened. And note... 4 million that they just killed. Huh? That they just killed over all those years. No, no, no. There's growth of the church. Oh, the growth no, no. of the church. Okay, I was like, that's a lot. There were ten thousand living Christians, <laughs> oh. some of whom got killed. Oh, okay. And by the early fourth century, possible. there were four million. <laughs> four million. Some yeah. of whom okay. got killed. Oh, okay. Um, and notice in that progression, there wasn't a single political movement. Mm. Yeah. Anything other than, than the compelling witness of a community that lived life differently that everyone was drawn to. Witness meaning martyr. Yeah. And the difference, too, was that they were caring for the poor people in their midst. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they cared about justice. They, they, you know, and then later on people were helping those in the plague. You know, Christians were there. So it, it's this difference of, wow, you're not afraid to die, you know, you're kind to people that we just, you know, are refuse so, to. So this is something I thought of when we can jump into Malachi in the text, but Malachi is significant because 
it's it begins to highlight the problems of of, of the Israel's the rights of return rebuild they're ready to go let's reestablish the kingdom and yet we've got this laxity that can't quite yeah there's not the vibrancy of faith and um Thought. Um, uh-huh. Oh, so so that martyrdom then is—it's um, not so much that I physically die, although it often did, has now. Even it is—it is more important to stand for Christ and the truth of the gospel than it is to obtain any other temporal result. And part of the problem of Christianity in our time is that it's being used as a means to the end of some political victory and not as an end in and of itself that's willing to accept defeat for its principles. Mm -hmm. And when we get into ends justifying means, uh, we get into not a Christian religion. That certainly is, epitomizes, at least historically, some, some forms of Islam and and certainly, you know, sort of communism, the ends justify the means, we're going to get here, we'll do this. But when Christian, and, and this has always been the problem of, of the church being co-opted in politics, is in on the political platform, you're just a voting block. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You're still just a commodity. But yeah, get back to martyrdom, it's only when we give up the need for any result. And, and are willing to live in the world as true disciples that we become witnesses. Mm-hmm. Most of us aren't there. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, that's why we would work on our own formation and not pointing fingers at the world because um, that's the witness of the church is not compelling because it's not different. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and the last uh, years of political unrest have only yeah. highlighted that because, yep, yep, yep. you know, churches have been every bit as partisan and ugly as as the world. Now, I don't say everyone. There are notable exceptions and notable places where Christian Christians have behaved differently. Again, it, it would be in a remnant uh, motif, not in a not in a. Um, so, yeah. all right. So, let's, with that backdrop, let's drop jump, jump into Malachi and start reading and read Malachi here because I, I think that one of the things I, I believe about Malachi. As a Old Testament setting, is that much like Ezra and Nehemiah, in some ways we can resonate with this setting because we, as traditional Christians in our current setting, are much more in a rebuilding mode. That is, the the beautiful edifice of Western Christendom has been destroyed. And now we've we we now we're coming now we're okay when we come back and we you know and, and um we're one what and and so this is where they're facing and the kind of discouragements and things that they face kind of relate to the attitudes we might be tempted to to um adopt. So this is why I think Malachi fits for us. So let's just jump in. And I would say uh, a date for Malachi might be like 460 C. That's a date I, I found somewhere. There's no no one says you know he's 460, but just looking at historical evidence, the temple's in existence, the walls of Jerusalem probably been rebuilt by now. Israel's functioning, but we'll see what the problems of this functioning are. 
And the other important thing about Malachi, or another important thing, is that he seems to be chronologically the last Old Testament prophet. Mm-hmm. What, the reason we don't recognize the books called the Apocrypha as scripture is because after Malachi, no one speaks with a thus saith the Lord authority mm-hmm. until whom? From the Baptist. That's the, you know, that's the. It says, what else do you know about Malachi? Well, we'll read it. A fan facts to know and tell? Yeah, I mean, about his background. Do we know anything? We don't know. We don't know a lot. Malachi can be my angel, my messenger. That is, me could mean. Usually the little singular I ending is a. Uh, possessive my. So the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The word burden can mean oracle. It has a, an association with the idea of weight, weightiness mm-hmm. um, uh, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And notice that he's saying to Israel, so this is just, there were two kingdoms, They've both been destroyed, they come back, and it's just one Israel now. Whatever's left is one Israel. Now, there's going to be a little bit of a, a, a dialogue form here, so let's read this, we can, we can explain it. Um, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? So, it, it appears at this time, point in time, there's a little bit of fatigue and as those who've come back to rebuild and restore the glory and find themselves about a generation later just languishing in a not-so-great-looking temple and a city that's kind of been rebuilt and surrounded by enemies, like, okay, God, <laughs> sounds like yeah, what would happen. <laughs> so you love, I've said you love you. How, how, how have I loved you? Yeah, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, now that's a line that St. Paul yeah. quotes in Romans, and it, it deals with the idea of election, because St. Paul says um, that God chose Esau over, or excuse me, Jacob over Esau, before they were born. That's a scary thing. <laughs> so, we're not going to go there today. In <laughs> we are not Calvinists in the sense that we believe in double predestination. God, uh, there's a plan food that got each and has a horrible plan for your life. <laughs> but the idea that God is sovereign. And, and to me, the, the only the one thing I would offer that, that, that we hold mysteries in tension. Mm-hmm. And um, one author said that all or that's too strong. Heresy can result when we resolve the paradox. And so what's the paradox here? That the God is sovereign and in control of all. Get aside the paradox. We have a, a choice. That's real. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why go say repent? Right. Mm-hmm. If you don't have an ability to say, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So, 
And how do we resolve the tension between the idea that we are real human, humans with agency, and yet God is sovereign? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've learned in my own practice of the faith that most things can be resolved much better existentially than mentally. Mm-hmm. What do I mean by that? Well, just think about your life. It doesn't make any sense that God's sovereignty got a choice yet. Your whole life of prayer depends upon that being the case. Mm-hmm. You, if you were just a robot, okay, God just told you what to do. I don't have any choice. You wouldn't have a chance to come and pray for things and decide to do this and not to do that. But if you were really, if your choice was really definitive, that'd be scary. But God, okay, where's your overarching providence within this thing? So our experience of life requires those two. The fullness of life requires us always to be there in some mysterious way with a slight nod to the providence of God, thankfully. Yes. Because you've ever made a stupid choice. Oh, yes. Never. And like, 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 um, like we said, God, all things work together for good. Uh-huh. Even the stupid thing I did, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. This, this whole week, yeah. I'm saying, I'm sure you have to learn for a little bit. <laughs> so, so he chose Jacob as the gist of this verse too. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, and laid waste his mountains and heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Now, we should note something about the historical setting here. Edom, not only being an historical enemy of Israel from the time that Esau and Jacob separated, although there's a nice reunion in the actual life of Esau and Jacob in, in the Old Testament back, uh, back way back when, but when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, the Edomites helped the Babylonians and were cheerleaders. Huh. Psalm 137 says, uh, they said, down with it, raise it, burn it, burn it. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's where the, the most, pro- maybe the most problematic verse in all the Psalms comes from. Blessed is he who takes your children and throws them against the stone. Mm-hmm. Oh. Right. But listen, you say, yeah, how can that happen? Well, okay. Let's let's just take your, your beloved homeland that you're marching out of, and you see people saying, Yeah. Yeah. In a visceral moment, you might relate to that. And that's so that's what that so so the commentary on Edom here has to do with this very recent historical memory. Of, of Edom, Edom, the Edomites being very nasty to Esau and Edom are connected. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and laid his mountain, his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. So, so what God is saying here is <clears throat> there's an historical judgment here on Esau, who who is nasty to his brother. So God loved Jacob and hated Esau, but of course Esau's lack of favor plays itself out in his malice towards his brother. And even though Edom has said, verse 4, we have been impoverished, we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness. Probably the idea there is that because it's destroyed and never rebuilt, it'll it'll have, for the people who know of it, a testament to their to their wickedness. Mm. They behaved badly, and, and so they were destroyed. And the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Can I ask a question about Esau and Jacob? Jacob seems to me to be the one 
Music and Ivor, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the bad guy rather than Esau. Okay. Why did why did God like Jacob better? Good question. Was that his sovereign will, regardless of who Jacob was? I mean, he was a supplanter and. Well, I, I, you know, it, it's this is the mystery of, of election and choice. Uh, Jacob did believe in God. He built an altar at Bethel. We made a deal with God. <laughs> you have all these things happen, and I come back, and then I'll tithe. They saw the ladder too. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Jacob's not without, but but also we should understand that Jacob learned a lot. Mm -hmm. Yes, he, he he was a you know uh, as Wrestling as the Genesis King. says a, a smooth man as the King James says. <laughs> um, but then he goes to Laban. That's part of the wonderful narrative of the Bible where. <laughs> Laban is also a manipulative man who switches his wife and switches. So there's all kinds of switcheroos in the <laughs> literature of the Bible there. That's, that's uh, so God chooses and we chooses. Now let's, he still let's works, but let's it? but let's again. Yeah. I, I just think that bringing it home. Um, are we always the people who God just says, "Oh, you're so adorable." Yeah, right. <laughs> I see why. I see why I chose you. Oh, or are we sometimes the yeah, and and we rely on God's covenant faithfulness to be with us, even when we weren't exactly what we should have been. And this is this is part of what I think he's getting at here is Israel has come back and rebuilt from their um, judgment that came upon them because God has made an everlasting covenant with Israel. His faithfulness is going to be seen in his presence with them in some way. Uh, Edom is not. They're gone. So historical judges go out that way. And that's why our own relationship with, with uh, God in Christ through baptism. Why is baptism significant? Because baptism is um, God's uh, barking of us. Our faith is our response. That's that wises wanes and flags. Hopefully enough mustard seed to hold on. But it's God's promise to us ultimately that He's not going to let us go. And so this is the faithfulness to Jacob that doesn't go on to um, that doesn't apply to Edom, who's not the chosen son. Now let's be clear about this. And this is the radical thing of the New Testament. Thus we become ethnically misled here. In Christ, everybody can come. Either yeah. <clears throat> Ishmael, everybody gets yeah. to come, and we'll get to that. But but the covenant faithfulness with with um, you know, with to Israel is that through Abraham will come will, will the chosen seed will come will be sustained and will come culminating in the Messiah, and then in the Messiah now everybody can come in through faith the whole reconfiguration of Israel. But at this point in time, we see that covenant God has maintained his covenant faithfulness with Israel, but not to Edom. So they've experienced a judgment for what, for their, for their, um, their, what they've done. And everybody, everybody can come, but not everybody can enter. Potentially, it's open to everybody who, who, um, who will have faith, who will repent and believe. Bishop, I read, a, I remember reading this in a, 
Oprah commentary like 20 years ago. They, they said it's an alliteration, so it's not exactly but the story. They were saying the word Jacob means like crooked because he like, you know, after he wrestled with God, his leg was crooked. But it's like the one who was crooked, you know, who like multiplicity in his dealings. God has made straight. When he became Israel, it's the one who was crooked, Jacob, Israel. God has made straight. So God has straightened. So I look at it like our salvation like that too. It was just so I've never heard that of that um, take on the name. Look, look it up. Yeah, look it up because I, I remember I that because it's helped me. He wrestles with and, God. And that's when, <laughs> when he wrestles with the angel, when he says, what is your name? Mm-hmm. He doesn't say his name like this morning's reading. Right. Wonderful. But he said, but now you are Israel. Mm-hmm. So he was no longer Jacob. He became it's like God has redeemed, but yeah. thanks. Well, there's, al- there's also a, a name that is also. Um, also um, yeah. In a sense, having a control over is yeah. why God doesn't give His name to people yeah. uh, because yeah. you can't you can't control God by knowing. There's an awful bunch of names that describe God, but there's mm-hmm. a, a name that can't be spoken. So, but God can name your Israel, and mm-hmm. and I will. So, and he wrestles with God, that covenant faithfulness we worked out with God being faithful in Israel, you know, being, being um, the epitome of the human condition of relationship with God. And it's kind of, it's kind of beautiful, really, that the, the lineage of Jesus is just riddled with people <laughs> like us, you know, it's just like, it's, yeah. So, so anyway, so there's that, the, 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 the point of how, how have you loved us is my covenant faithfulness with you as opposed to Esau is evidence that I've loved you. And the very fact that you're still there. Yeah. Because there was judgment, but it's not. It hasn't been final. And that's why even, as Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! So, uh, (laughs) moving on to (laughs) moving on to verse six. So he's going to kind of go through uh, the 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 case you know he has against uh, the people right now. One was responding to that God doesn't really love us. Look at look what's happening. So that was his first answer. Verse six: The son honors his father, and the servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am the master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? <laughs> what are you talking about? Who knows what? Sounds like a... You're, you're off, you offered vile food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord? Now, this this seems to have uh, an implication of a a few things going on here. Um, One is it, it seems to suggest the priests are finding their their temple duties tedious and boring in the light of just the broken down condition. Um, you might, um, you know, I, I might liken it to something um, where 
let's say we have a priest, just take a, in a contemporary church setting, who, who's taking care of a, a small congregation that's dwindling, you know, and, uh, versus someone who's maybe has a job in a very fancy parish, lots of money, stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And the one is okay. You're, you know, you, you get lots of esteem and lots of, uh, and the other like you do, there'd be a tendency to just say, get burnt out. I think that seems to be a little bit what's happening here. Is they're, they're, um, <coughs> these priests are, are carrying out their duties in a diminished Israel for a lukewarm people mm-hmm. in a temple that is like not that great. So the idea that the offering was contemptible. And then there seems to be with that then the sort of beginning to um, um, not fully follow the, the, the Torah rules for sacrifice. It's very clear in Deuteronomy that the land you walk out through that blemish. And so people begin to bring stuff and, and bring stuff that doesn't really fit the bill of that. Mm-hmm. So it's not their first and best. Is that, it's, cause that makes me think about, it almost parallels in my head the thing that Jesus said, many will come to me in those times, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things you wanted us to do? Yeah. So I don't know. And they did some really, they're, I mean, the claims are like what you said. Well, we, you know, we went to the temple. Oh, it was, yeah, I'm with church. We talked about Yeah, there's my sacrifice. You know, and again, it was so. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of what's going, what's, um, I, I think Malachi really seems to throughout hearken at the importance of, of both a heart that is right, but also a religion that expresses it in a in a in a way like of offering God the first and best, and doesn't settle for perfunctory. So um, it's like people say, "Well, it's a thought that counts." <laughs> it, it may it, it, it there may be circumstances where that's the case, but if your thought is love. Yeah. then the, the, the actual thing you do will express some sort of sacrifice. And to say it's a thought that counts because I don't want to make any effort to go to the store and get something for you. Yeah. And I just say, hey, I love you, you know that. It's like, well. <laughs> I don't really. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you can kind of think about that just in terms of our own, because um, we all fall into this. Because it, it's a reason, for example, that prayer is so easy to neglect. Mm. Why? Because something else is always more enticing, exciting. Mm-hmm. Wanting prayer, but there's the news. So there's, but wait a minute. Oh and, and so um, it, it's interesting, too, when people say, uh, I've, I've had, you know, you see the kind of, you see where people get excited about things. You can think about your area of interest, but people will say, I don't have time for prayer. Mm-hmm. No, can't, can't, can't get here or there. And then yet, if you watch like, for example, a football fan. Hmm. How much effort and labor and money goes into a Sunday morning? Yeah. Dressed up, ready to go, first and best, going to be down there. Yeah, church is convenience. But if their game kicked off at that same time, oh, hey. You know, I noticed that too myself. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've um, you know, you're, you're, no one ever says that that overtime game, God, it was so long. <laughs> <laughs> go, 
once it's over, I want to. But but it's it's almost it's almost not so much. Even there, we could run the risk of saying, "Oh yeah, I'm bad. I need to go suffer in church." But it's more of a missed, a, a, a sort of misguided vision of um, what is truly important. And the more we see God as is, the more we understand being in God's presence. This is where life is received and and nurtured. And we and realize in comparison to things, though they have they're fun, we can do them, must be subsidiary, it must even be balanced, because we can see how they can make the, the temporal and the passing to become all consuming at the expense of the terminal. And that's why cultivating a life for prayer takes work to cultivate where where you are are become comfortable in the presence of God and actually prefer being there into some of the other places. What have you cited Mother Teresa saying? Oh, that, yeah, if you didn't pray three hours a day, I'd never get anything done. That, that, that's really sad. But, but also the, I just I think it's also the idea of um, acclimating to, to reality. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I, I think a sacramental perspective on the world is mm-hmm. we come into church, but we're really entering, entering into reality. Mm-hmm. A symbolic world that presents reality the way it is with God, it's all with the Lord, central. And as we begin to um, orient our lives to live in that space, we develop the vision to see it. And a growing awareness of some of these other things that seem like, oh, that was so important. It's like, oh, it's really important. But it's, it's, so it's not this the idea that you're not, um, you're, you're, you know, you're doing this. More than you're doing this can't be solved by a mere legalism. You know, okay, I'll go there. See, not I did spend two hours in church. I was miserable there. It's not that that would not be any better. God doesn't want you. It want you. It, it can only be be um, be remedied by a reorientation of life around the things that matter. And th- this I actually think is something that um, is really important. In our time, because I, I I don't think people understand that we talk about the renewal of faith and what the church, you know, how we're going to fire people up. But the real problem with our time is that there's a there's a a sense of time that comes at, that that associated with it with living in the kingdom of God, and there's a sense of narrative associated with living in the kingdom of God, and we enter into that sense of time and story through the life of prayer as our day, as our days and weeks and seasons and years begin to follow the narrative of redemption mm-hmm. and not really the narrative of the world going from, you know, the Memorial Day sale to the <laughs> July 4th sale. To the, and, and I think the, the real problem a lot of people have in, in trying to be Christians is faith becomes this abstract thing that I try to exercise while I'm fully in the middle of this other sense of time and narrative. It is why it's not even so much. It's why, like we talk about going to church on Sunday, it's not so much you don't go to church, you're a bad person. It's just like that's the first day of the week, mm-hmm. the Lord's day. It's where time begins, and you it's can't like really reorient the rest of your time unless. 
unless you begin your time in Christ, and out of that then flows a different way of looking. Now, now we've, we've risen, and now we're going to the world as witnesses. That's what the early church really understood about this. The Eucharist gathering was, this is where we come together to experience the resurrection on the Lord's Day, and experience this thing out of which comes a way of life. We've kind of abstracted it. You know, there's a thing called faith you have. You're saved, but you're you're just fully in this other story. So unless you change the way you reorient the way you experience time and, and, and change the way you narrate your life, you can't really live a Christian life. And that's, that's part of the problem with this. It, it takes a, a thoroughgoing reorientation. And I think, I think we're in a time where, um, the, to me, to my mind, the, the, the big crisis is not are you saved or not saved, which has been the evangelical focus and not, not a wrong one at, at this moment. But now, saved into what? <laughs> saved into having an insurance policy, I lived this order life all my life, and then I, I get to go to heaven, mm-hmm. or saved into a new life in Christ, a new creation. In, in, in a new community mm-hmm. in which we experience freedom from the things that used to hold us captive. And I think that's what we, that's why our focus is so much on spiritual formation, is that unless you are willing to enter a longer term consideration of those things, you can't, this life doesn't have any power or significance, it's just a thing. Bishop, where does obedience come in? Because we talked about this in women's group, because, you know, there is a place where we need to do something and we don't want to do it, and you know, so... I think that God honors obedience. Like, okay, you know, a lot of people don't understand that that's the beginning of the of time going on Sunday mornings. But they learn, you know, I learned it later on. It's like, oh, I need to go to church every Sunday. And I was obedient to that, but then I learned, you know, that gave me a new perspective. I got reoriented and reformed by the teaching, you know, so... Yeah, well, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think the cultural drift on this has been gradual and, and real. It, it, it could be, um, I, I don't have a thoroughgoing critique of 20th century progression consumer culture. i tell you one thing that, 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 that really, was, I remember a Sports Illustrated article about, about, the, about the TV. And so we let it into our living room on Sunday, mm-hmm. football. Mm-hmm. Became and so Sunday became. We we left Christian time into economic time, mm-hmm. and what happens is we 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 see faith as something that we draw into consumer time to make us happier consumers, rather than bringing our consumption into Christian time and subjecting it to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So I do think a thorough reconstruction of time. I mean the twenty four seven always moving, always busy world is demonic. It's not what the Lord gave. So funny in a certain way. Keep you know, take take a day off. How he resisted. Mm-hmm. Like, oh we got and that's that whole productive, anxious you know, um and that's really the gist of what, what Jack was getting out with Mother Teresa quote. It's not so much that that um you know uh you don't have to do things. It's more if you don't have that sense of connectedness to God in Christ and the settlement, not growing in it. It's not I have it or don't have it. It's 
something we taste and grow into. As we grow into it, then it begins to order everything else. We begin to realize the compulsions that tug at us like, that's stupid. And we begin to have the strength to live in, in that in that thing. But if we don't have that, we just we we just being in a you know, thoroughgoing consumer time, consumer story, and trying to bring Jesus into that, it doesn't work. And I think that that's um, especially it can be in a diminished church diminished in the sense of not as grand or socially notable or having as big a position in the culture. So now, but now it provides, well, well, then it's only, the only reason to be there is because you really believe it. Aha. So maybe that's the beginning of the, of the renewal, that, that we, we go that direction with it. I was, I was reading letters, but that's really interesting because in the early part of our history, there, there was... Uh, a real tension between the evangelical type Protestant church and the Catholics within the United States. And there, if you look into the history, you'll see enormous amounts of propaganda printed against the Catholics saying that the Catholics are just lazy and slow. They don't care. The Protestants, the evangelical and Protestant church are, are highly productive and we can owe all of our prosperity to the product to the productiveness of the Protestants, and the Catholic religion is a religion of slothfulness and all this stuff. And that's what I was thinking about when you said that. I thought, I wonder if this is in today. It's the same thing. Like mm-hmm. you've got these small little Catholic churches here, these little lights, and then no one. T- all I hear is, ah, it's a dead church because it's small. It's not as big as ours. We got like. 25,000 people showing up every Sunday. Mm-hmm. So the production, mm-hmm. I wonder if that's... Well, I, 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 think, I think there is this tendency not, not passing Jim and anyone's 25,000 member church, but uh, <laughs> but it, it would be more the sense of what are we esteeming ourselves by? Is mm-hmm. it the, the produce of, of, of virtue or is it... And this, this clearly has been the case. Or is it just how big we are? Yeah. Which I, I think is something that I've had to wean myself from in my ministry because nobody goes into ministry, at least in the last generation, where the first question was, well, how big is church? Mm-hmm. Comes right out of Acts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Well, there we are. So, we, we began Malachi. We're going to do, um, we'll, we'll, we'll move uh, more apace next week. We're going to do two, two more weeks on Malachi. And then, and then take a break, so we'll finish our summer. Our, our summer so does that, I don't have a calendar square in my head, but does that take us all through July, or are we, like the last week? The last week we're not meeting. Okay. okay. And will Mass still continue on Thursday mornings through I, I believe so. We'll, we'll make a, an announcement okay. about that to okay. clarify, but I believe it will. So you still have to come. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, or just Thursdays? Okay. I will we'll clarify. <laughs> okay. staff I will clarify what okay. that looks like, and uh, we will publish. Okay. Okay. There you go. Right. Never stop. No, we never would stop, but we have to find it. There's some time when no one's here. We have to say maybe not this week or something. Right. Okay. We won't. We won't take a nap, a break. We won't make a break. We won't take a break in saying mass. But the question is just who's it's on that count. Okay.
Alright. Okay. Let's pray, Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong. 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 I don't know what